Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Just at the end of recording this podcast, we did receive some extremely sad news that Murray Walker has passed. I just want to send my condolences out to his family and this is a horrific shock for the motorsport world. Hello and welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. It is uh, day two of testing at the moment. We've got some awesome F1 action and a few surprises to discuss. On the panel with me today, we have Matt. How are you, sir? Dressed like a Ferrari? You know, I didn't intend for it to be a theme costume, but it kind of ended up being that way. Uh, I'm just excited that I am not the only man on my island this week. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we, we have Callum. Callum's back from a, like an eight-week break of this podcast, aren't you? I oh, know. Due to internet issues and other things, I've not been able to uh, join the panel, but I'm so glad to be back. I'm excited. But we do have someone else on this podcast. We have Lewis Frank. How are you? Ah, great. Good to be here. Nice to meet all of you, virtually. And yourself. If only we could be doing it over a beer together, but uh, this is this is the way it is. I think you're our first international guest as well, so there, there's another box text. For the people that don't know yourself, would you like to, to, to let us know a little bit about you? Uh, you got two or three hours. Uh, but I'll just tell you, how about international? Sometimes in NASCAR, amongst my well-traveled journalists, I call myself international white trash while I'm in NASCAR. But... Uh, I'm so stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, anyone in the States listening, apologies. I, my friends in NASCAR, they're, they're great. But I, I just, I, I, I was born in, in New York, New York City, Brooklyn, and uh, grew up in Long Island and was absolutely mad about racing cars. And they, they raced at a sports car track called Bridgehampton, 100 miles east of New York. And I, I'm all American. I mean, I like baseball, but uh, 
Um, I, I went to university. I studied accounting, hated it. So I became a lawyer and uh, I lost grades because on my every free freaking moment, I went to car races, Bridgehampton, Lime Rock. And, uh, and uh, I made connections as we was, I talk a lot and I met a lot of wonderful people and I was taking pictures and uh, I went from taking pictures uh, uh, I met in the Formula V days, the 1600, they had 1200 and 1600 Formula V. Uh, Porsche was imported by Volkswagen. And one year I'm down in Daytona the, uh, and they're running the IROC race, the International Race of Champions. It was Porsche the very first year, RSRs. And uh, a, a guy from a German magazine uh, was there just for Friday. He fell in love with NASCAR. Um, and they said, well, we need another photographer. This is at Outer Motor and Sport long before Norbert Hogg. And uh, I, I got my international connection through being in Daytona for a NASCAR race. Uh, and then they said to me, why don't you write some, hire a writer? And I said, well, sod that, as you might say over there, <laughs> I'll write. And uh, along the way, I met, I met a very dear friend who's my best friend, he and his wife are like family. And I showed him my work. And they said, you write like a lawyer. And, and, and I said, thanks. And they said, it's not a compliment. So over the <laughs> years, over the years uh, I honed my writing skills. And through the European connections, I've written for uh, Rambo, which is no longer around. It was a competition to Auto Sprint in Italy. Uh, I've written for Motorsport Actuel, which has come back in Switzerland. Uh, racing is really a small community. As many people as you think are involved in it, at the end of the day, it's very small. But I've been very blessed. And when I was 47, I quit being a lawyer just to follow my dream. I gave up any hopes of owning a Ferrari or a Tesla. Well, I that Tesla's then, but maybe. Uh, but uh, I, I, I got to follow my dream. And any of you listeners out there, you can do it too. You know, maybe it's not journalism. Maybe you have a, a technical uh, a skill, but you know, f don't give up, follow your dream. And I have no regrets, no regrets. I've been very blessed and, uh, and I forgot yesterday, I, I even covered races in Japan. I've been to many F1 tracks, most of the tracks in America, um, thanks to racing. It, it's, been, it's been wonderful. So you, you've, you've traveled the world doing what you love, which is watching races and writing about it. I mean, uh, what are the, some, some of the publications you've written for and how many articles have you written? Do you keep count? No, I, I, I used to keep the, all the issues of the magazines till, you know, some, I, I thought they were going to find me, you know, like dead in my apartment one day and said he's this, you know, hoarder or something. <laughs> but I mean, Motorsport Actuel was a weekly uh, national speed sport news uh, Chris Economaki was the was like he's the Murray Walker of America for TV. I used to write for them. I've been in little publications of the New York Times, uh, ESPN magazine, ESPN.com, SI.com, SI the magazine. Um, I've lost count. Uh, as, as everything is switched to online, most of my work now appears online. I got to, I forgot uh, to mention when Nigel Mansell came to run in then the CART series, now IndyCar, uh, again, because of my, my reputation and hanging around all kinds of foreign people and stuff, uh, I, I got, that's how I got my Reuters connection. And uh, you could Google me in Reuters. Uh, oh, I wrote the first national article about Danica Patrick. 
uh, racing in a Toyota pro celebrity race with Tommy Kendall, the seven-time Trans Am champion. Wow. Uh, I will recommend, a friend of mine in London almost got thrown off a bus for laughing, but I, I, wrote, a, I wrote an article for Auto Week called NASCAR Jargon. And it was an homage to an American comedian, George Carlin. And <laughs> so I'll give you a teaser. I said, you know, if someone loses an engine, where does it go? Is there a reward for it? And I just riffed off of, off of that. It was a quiet day in Daytona. I owed a column. Uh, I, I've written about uh, toilet paper uh, at skid marks. For <laughs> I, I really prefer to write perspective and give my my view. Uh, I've, you know, because any any you know, almost anyone can write a race story, but my view is my view, right or wrong. So. Uh, Oh, so ask me about the uh, the whitewater rafting in Canada with the uh, with the BAR team. You beat me to it. You beat me to it. We, in the pre-show, um, when we were just we we were just having a chat, we were like, we cannot wait to hear this story. So uh, I'll let, I'm going to let you uh, tell us that one. Uh, so if you remember, Lucky Strike was the sponsor. This was before all the tobacco bans, and so they had this idea. Well, why don't we take a bunch of media? out to the Ottawa River. Now, I, I, I don't ride horses. I can drive a manual car, but I'm more cerebral type, so, okay. So they take us, we go to Ottawa, capital of Canada. They take us out to this white water, white water rafting is going down rapids, in case you use a different term over there. And so, <clears throat> but rather than put us in these nice wooden 14 person boats, they're going to put this in a four-person thing. Looks like a bathtub ring for your little child. <laughs> I mean, this was brilliant idea. They gave us fifteen minutes of preparation. I had the May West. I had a helmet, glasses, and but we're not going to just go down the rapids. You're going to do. You. We want you to surf the eddy, and eddy is a pool like a whirlpool. And we're going to rate you on these. As luck would have it, they put me with Alistair Gibson, who was then the crew chief. I think he went on to Honda. And now he's quite the renowned artist. And I want to go see his stuff. Uh, he, work, he works in carbon fiber. So I, I do the, the 15 minutes of training. I get on this thing. And we go over the first rapids. I said, I'm going to live. I'm going to live. And then we go over the eddy. And they say, you didn't take it right. <laughs> You didn't take the, what do you mean? You've got to go back. And we go over to the eddy. Oh, and they say, if you fall in the water in the eddy, put yourself in a ball, you're going to float straight up. Okay. So, okay. No, no, don't make us go to the eddy. And we go, and of course we're dumped into the water. Okay. What am I doing? I'm getting in the ball. And I pop up and I get sucked down a second time. And I thought, and if, if I drown, my family will never forgive me. What am I doing? I'm 50 years old. What am I doing? And they fished me out of the water. And uh, after, then I got on the wooden boat. I, I said, you don't need to rate me. So after it was over, Gibson says, nice meeting you. And he says, well, why don't you stop by the garage sometime? And by then, they've got all this heavy security at the racetrack. You just cannot walk into an F1, hard enough to get a paddock pass, okay, media pass. Try walking into someone's garage, you know, after the Eddie Jordan thing and the video videoing everybody's thing. 
So Alistair says, just tell the security guard, I'm the crew chief who will almost drown you. <laughs> and the next year I went to Indianapolis. These two beefy guys in black jackets. Can we help you? Who are you? Yeah, nobody. I said, I'd like to speak to Alistair. What's your name? I said, just tell him I'm the American bloke who you try to drown. And he came and he gave me a whole tour of that. that there's, there's your, oh, and it made the, uh, the airline uh, for Canada Air. Uh, one of the PR people in Canada said, yeah, you did great. You, you were one of the highlights of the almost drowned journalist out of a river. <laughs> you don't hear stories like that anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> no. If you're going to rate me, I'm alive. That's the only rating I need out of that. But, but yeah, I mean, thanks to racing, I almost drowned in the Ottawa River. <laughs> well, I guess we, we know what to do now to get into the paddock, boys, don't we? We need to go on a river, nearly drown. Yeah. We're in. We're in. Well, make, make sure someone from the team knows that, that you, you were there at their invitation. That's Cal, we have to have a racing person with us. We can't just go drown in a river and all of yeah, a sudden. Yeah, yeah. If you do it all alone, uh, yeah, it's just. Oh. Scary. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the tips of Lewis kills one of the Formula Nerds. <laughs> Something like that, that show. Uh, oh, about the, the, the driving show. Oh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment. Top Gear. Top Gear. That's it's a it's a Top Gear kind of thing. Like that, when they that's yank telepathy. You two know nothing about that. I've got you, Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Now, when they burned down the car park, that in the caravan park, that just I said, oh god. <laughs> um, so, how how did you find out and get into Formula One? Obviously, you've, you've you've been in the motorsport world for a very very long time. You've seen all sorts of motorsport from across the pond. But what 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 drew you to F one? New York back in the late sixties, the city because they were racing at Watkins Glen, and that's it's about two hundred miles out of New York. So uh, no racing in New York, you know, almost nothing other than. Uh, one day in a magazine, I read about a restaurant, French restaurant called Le Chanteclair, and it was run uh, by the, the Dreyfus family. By the way, a distant relation to the Dreyfus affair for your history nuts. And Rene won Monte Carlo in 1930. And no, I was not alive in 1930. I may be the oldest guy here, but I wasn't. <laughs> I, and, uh, but they said all kinds of Formula One people go there. And and uh, it really is, you know, someplace you have to visit. So uh, uh, I was a teenager then and uh, uh, I got I got on a nice top. People dressed nice. We had short haircuts. The Beatles had come over a couple of years before. I had a haircut, tie, blazer. And and as I, I, I walk into this place, it was just a little bit next door to uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. Think Selfridges. Really. And I'm walking, I'm, I'm a 16 year old kid and people are in suits and they're smoking cigarettes, you know, there's a cloud. And, and, and I walk in and over the bar are pictures of famous race drivers. And, oh my God. And, and then Renee comes over to me. Now, now, now Renee is from La Turbie, which is a little town just north of Monte Carlo. And he walks up to me matter of factly, uh, I, I knew I was out of place. You know, I was a kid. Everybody there was a successful something or other. He says, may I help you? I could barely get the words out of my mouth. I know that shocks you guys, but I could barely get. And I said, I like racing. And he says, OK, very well. 
And we walk to the back, far back of the restaurant. And I'm thinking, right, he's kicking me out through the kitchen because obviously I don't belong. And he sits me down at the last, the last booth. And uh, in old days, libraries used to keep newspapers on racks uh, in bamboo things. And he had Auto Week and Competition Press was the only the only weekly other. Well, Chris Economac, he did National Speed Sport News, but that was more oval track. But this was the Bible. So he says to me, uh, you'll have a Coca-Cola. I don't even think they had Diet Coke. And he says, have a Coca-Cola, read the newspaper, and I will come back to you when the lunch hour is over. And he sat down and we talked about racing and F1 and I was hooked and we became friends. It, it was it was amazing. I mean, uh, in 1976, I think it was, that was from the, the mug I showed you earlier, the first Formula One race. He was there, Fangio was there. Um, but getting back to F1, excuse me, my first interest was sports cars. I saw the Nassau Speed Weeks. And what would happen, Formula One season ended a lot earlier in those days, okay? And so then they would have sports car racing uh, at the end of Long Island at this Bridgehampton. And they had the Can-Am series. You take a big block American V8, put it in a Lola chassis. Or I remember the Lotus 40 was a Lotus 30 with 10 more mistakes, all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and uh, by the way, uh, the statute of limitations is over. I snuck into the pits. Try this at a Formula One race. I was uh, I, I helped someone push their car in, into the pits from the paddock. I had no uniform. I had no credentials. All of a sudden, I'm in the pits for a Can-Am race. <laughs> Bruce and Denny McLaren, uh, 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 Bruce McLaren and Denny Hillholm were there, Chris Amon. Um, but yeah, so in those days, the, the sports car world and the F1 world were, were co-equal. You drove both. I, I don't mean to put down the sports car world now, but basically a lot of the F1 drivers consider sports cars after F1. But in those days, you did both. Jo Jody Schechter, I believe, it's a Peter Revson. Uh, I think I wrote to you about my, my meeting with Peter Revson. So, but little by little, uh, it, it's the people in F1 got me interested. And then Jim, Jim Clark. Oh, I never got to meet him. He was... On my, 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 on my podium, it was, it was Andretti, Gurney, and Jim Clark. And I'm lucky enough to have known the, uh, uh, I know at Mario and I knew Dan and Jim Clark. Uh, but that's kind of how I did. And in those days, it was very rough. Uh, there was no internet. I didn't even have anyone to talk to about this. So I just had to wait for my Thursday edition of Competition Press and Auto Week. And then like a month later, they would show it on ABC Wide World of Sports. They would show the F1 race. I, I'm finding so many goofy per parallels to my life with you, Lewis. Uh, you're talking about sneaking onto uh, current day tracks. And this is something that neither one of these guys know. Uh, I lived in Phoenix for a while to go to school out there. And Phoenix International Raceway is right outside of, uh, not Glendale, it's Avondale. Avondale. Uh, Arizona. And... I had just bought a little Shadow 750 motorcycle and was out of school from Universal Technical Institute and decided to go for a ride one night. And at that time, I was smoking cigarettes. So I, I didn't even know where PIR was, but I had heard a couple of the small, uh, smaller class races out there. And 
the school I was at, they were going to allow us to work in the pits. So I decided to go find where the racetrack was. So I ride my little motorcycle out there in the it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you you can you can't even see it from Phoenix. Right. And uh, I remember it's on this long straightaway, and you have the main entrance gate. And as you're looking at the racetrack to the left, there's a small like service entrance with no guard shack, no nothing. So my fat butt pulls up on a motorcycle, <laughs> gets off, and decides that I'm going to smoke a cigarette there and kind of just you know take take in where it's at and just enjoy being near a racetrack even with nobody on it. So I'm leaned up against the bike and I have my cigarette in my hand and I look and the way they secured the gate, and this was in 2015, uh, is they had two chains that wrapped around the posts and they had a padlock in it. Well, whoever had secured the gate that night did not put the padlock stem through the, uh, the chain. So I sat there and I have this moral dilemma of, do I open the gate and go in or do I just you know, stand there and do nothing. You have to go in. <laughs> so, so I actually opened the gate and I am proud to announce here before God and everybody that I did seven laps around Phoenix International Raceway <laughs> on a Shadow 750, barely getting above 80 miles an hour before security showed up. And I just rode out the little service tunnel underneath <laughs> their passes and out the gate back to my house and I hid for like three hours where I was going to get arrested. <laughs> but like... It, it fascinates me that you talk about now, uh, you know, back then that there was not a lot of people to talk to in the States about F1. No. There still isn't. Right. Uh, it's, it's it's easier to find, you know, thankfully I found these two chuckleheads and the glorious little team we've built. But one of my questions to you is with F1 being so similar to IndyCar, why do you feel that F1's never really taken off here on the scale that it should and has the ability to. Because, now, Mario, it, it, the simple answer, no American driver, yes, Phil Hill, Mario Andretti was born overseas, but, and, and I mean, Americans raced, Brett Lunger raced, uh, but no American, Michael Andretti, of course, but the reason it hasn't taken off, there's no American rooting interest. Part of Haas F1 is 15, 20 minutes away from me in Kannapolis, near, near the Charlotte Motor Speedway. Gunther Steiner, who was with Red Bull in the stock car, in the stock car I, I, I had coffee with him before the team started. I don't see him at all now. And the, the way the team is going, I may not see him for another two or three years. <laughs> but, uh, no offense. Uh, so, but you need, you need a rooting interest, maybe an American team. You know, the people have tried. There were American teams in the 50s and 60s. They were like one-offs and stuff, people buying older older F1 equipment. But the main reason is there's really no American. It's not even the time because uh, in America now, football, our, our soccer, football, you know, uh, now that has a huge following, and yet there's there's no American team. And and forgive me, I, I don't know if there's any American stars, you know, in the FA Cup or whatever. But uh, you need an American. You need a rooting interest. And I think the height of F1 interest was when Mario was running. And that was 1970s. Um, the, you know, and one of the questions that was asked to Gene Haas, who, by the way, is no relation to Carl Haas, who ran Nigel Mansell, uh, was that. Uh, you know, wh why not an American driver, you know? And he, he you know, I think he made a mistake. It, it's hard. The, the, the farm system 
back then was a little easier. Yes, there were pay drivers back then too, but I think the stepping stone way back, I remember Formula Two and things, and, and there was a path and Red Bull, you know, they had, they had uh, besides A.J. Amendinger, they had another name I can't think of and he was in and out and he raced for Red Bull here in the States, uh, Scott Speed. Got, uh, I got it. Yeah. I got a lot of stuff rattling around in here, you know. So uh, anyway, but I think the, the key is an American driver who wins. That's the simple answer. Because we have races. We've had American F1 races, but it's the circus comes to town and it goes away. Yeah. Do, do you think the um, – this is a bit of a controversial one, but do you think the Haas team has helped bring um, American fans into the sport at all? Obviously, we're racing in America. They're talking about having two races, but Haas have – they don't look very American this year. Has that puts people off? Uh, I, I wouldn't say puts people off. It's just – well, two things. The biggest thing of all in racing is – well, you know, when I was a kid, there was a lot less stuff to do. You didn't and you didn't have virtual racing. You didn't have drone racing. So you're in a number one, you're in a segmented market. And and but the thing is, the team, look, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm no snob, but, you know, to win in F1, you have to have a global mindset. And there's very few American teams. I mean, if Elon Musk wanted an F1 team, but of course, it would be all electric or whatever, um, you know, they might do it, but it's such a global sport. Look at the troubles Toyota had when they try to make a team, you know, and then they were based in Germany, you know? So I, I think it's just, but Americans and, and I, I'm typical and atypical American, but you, you need an, an American team that wins an American driver that wins. And by the way, there once was three, the U S Grand Prix. In one year. Didn't, and it didn't, because they came, people came. The hardcore fans, the Tifoso, the Tifosi showed up and they went home. I mean, you know, if, if General Motors or, or Ford, uh, you know, wanted to do, and yes, Ford was in it with Cosworth and that, but it, again, it was not, it was, it was Cosworth based Ford. But you, you need you need that package for there to be a rooting interest. I mean, th this is the country is so big. We got 50 states. And Matt will tell you, you know, the, the, the politics here are bonkers. So so it, you, you need something that would unify all our fans. If Take the Olympics. I would say this. When the Olympics come around, all of a sudden, when an American, when the women won, won the, uh, uh, was it was it soccer won the gold? Yeah, I uh, mean, women's World Cup. That was that was big, you know. Um, it's just it, it's going to be a niche sport in America until until. But most of all, an American driver who's a world champion. I think I think that that might take a while. I can't think of any coming up through the ranks at the moment, unless they obviously. Might have to be my lifetime, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, how then does F one, in your mind, compare against IndyCar? Um, and 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 also, you do a lot with NASCAR. So, what 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 is the appeal of of F one to you? Go back a little more personal in my life. I, I had some relatives who were world travelers way back to the sixties, and I'd go over to their house on the weekends, and they would have a slideshow or films. And it was the wanderlust. Um, 
I really, I really loved all these travel photos. And, and so um, that's kind of put me in a mood because F1 was mostly European based when I started. Now it's global. And, and, uh, but what I like about F1, racing people are the same wherever you go. Steve Hallam came over to, to, to run Michael Waltrip's uh, deal. And uh, 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 there, there's been a bunch of guys. And I've seen people, I know, I didn't even mention, you know, I've been to drag races. And I know racing people are the same around the world. And coupled with, with my, 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 my wanderlust and, and happy feet and the racing, I've gotten to travel around the world. A lot of times someone else paid, even better. <laughs> and, 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 but it, every, everyone has a, a different approach. And, but to me, F1, the, the Lord of, F, of F1, especially when it's just engines, I'm all right, I'm old school though, was yes, there's only two or three teams still at the very top, but the competition when most people were in the Cosworth V8s and the Ferraris, and I'm a, I mean, there was that, but also uh, to go back to two, I'm trying to figure the year now, the year that Zanardi started with Williams, I, I came over to do it, it was 99 or 2000, uh, I came over to do a story, it was the, it was the year before Indy started F1. I, I flew over and went up to the NEC in Birmingham where they had the, uh, they had the auto show. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, Zanardi was amazing. I have never met anybody in my life like Ali. He's he's got more life in him, uh, 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 just beyond. So anyway, but he when he was with Ganassi and they had maybe sixty or seventy employees on the IndyCar team. So Zanardi would talk about my boys, and when he went over to Williams, he said, "I can't even talk to the second engineer." So racing has changed. That's one thing that's off-putting to me. Uh, yes, industrial secrets, th thing, life changes. So uh, the nature of F1 changed, but I'm still fascinated by it. I am a Tifoso. I, I saw the, that Ferrari in black and white from the speed weeks. And ever since I've made two pilgrimages to, to Marinello. Uh, one of them actually paid uh, <laughs> by a magazine. So all good. Uh, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, my heart goes up and down. And I have a lot of friends at Shell who sponsors Joey Logano. So we commiserate in NASCAR. So, so we commiserate over Ferrari's uh, fortunes. But uh, again, it's the people. I've met some wonderful people. Uh, Pierre Dupasquier of Michelin was always very nice. He's from Paris. Everybody hates Parisians, not him. I got to tell you one quick story. We're in Montreal. And the French people in Montreal don't like English speakers. Okay, they still got the, the this. It's and we're eating in a really posh restaurant. Well, that comes up. Eating is also better in F one. Uh, <laughs> we hear this a lot. We do hear this a lot. Uh, and we're in this restaurant where you know, I go in, and and all of a sudden the Parisian French comes out, and the waiters who had been obnoxious a minute before, before Pierre showed up. All of a sudden, they were obsequious because he was speaking the mother's tongue. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's so many wonderful people I've met. And, and it, it's as a, I, I, I came for the racing and I stayed for the people.
And mostly the people are very nice, but you just have to put in time. I make an exception for Kimmy. (laughs) (laughs) Ferrari have obviously sloped down a little bit in terms of form over the last couple of years, just to to say the least. Callum, you're being Um, kind. (laughs) (laughs) But given the the fact that they've signed Carlos Sainz from a McLaren, which was doing quite well, do you think there's something that they're not quite showing in testing? Do you think there's something that they've got more to give in 2021? Do you think they can compete? Matt, Matt's more into this, but I'll just put on my lawyer cap for a minute. So what was the big problem last year? Motor, right? And what did they announce two weeks ago? We're reorganizing the chassis department. Full stop. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> In, in terms of in terms of your opinions, you, you, you said that you like to write um, as you, not just report. Um, what what really have you ever got in big trouble for voicing your opinion over the years? Uh, actually, it was a race report, and and I I was absolutely gutted. The media center at Long Beach is in the basement. Okay. It's a road course. I've gone out, I've photographed it. It's a street course. But I'm working on deadline for National Speed Sport News. Mario Andretti has a small shunt with someone. All I see on TV is the nose of his car in the side of somebody else's car. And, and uh, so I wrote, he T-boned this car. National Speech Sport News comes out on a Tuesday. Mario's in Nazareth. The magazine's in New Jersey. He probably got a hand delivered by Economaki. And Mario Andretti is screaming at me. My, <laughs> one of my podium of all time. What do you mean? I don't T-bone anybody. And he, and he just has at me for 20 minutes. And I, 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 I oh my God. You know, it's like, <laughs> What? What? Only he would see that, you know. And and then, saving grace, Michael was testing for McLaren. And I said, hey, Mario, how's Michael doing? And he calmed down and we talked about Michael for five minutes. So I realized Mario was venting. (laughs) But I I, I can't tell you, that was the worst day in my life in racing. (laughs) That sounds like I'm almost cringing for you right now. (laughs) What the hell did I do? That's Uh, how mean your hero is supposed to go. (laughs) And he called me, not, you know, and he had my phone number. Hey, Mario, you know, this is before mobile phones, you know, I knew his voice. That was was the worst uh, of, of something I wrote. I think I'd have both laughed and cried during that phone call. That sounds horrific. Well, I, I think a lot of oracles would have been bleeding and leading. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, one one great quick thing about Zanardi: there was there was a small shunt in the race at the hairpin. You're you're going not the high speed one on the back straight. This is the one, the little one, left rights, and it bent his steering arm. And Zanardi is driving like this. And he pulls into the pits and his crew chief, Rob Hill, and I've written this story. I'll try to send you guys a link. I'm very proud of it. Somehow this Reuters writer got a story with an AP byline. But this Rob Hill, 
pounded the steering arm bare hands. And he went on to win the race. I mean, incredible stuff. That, that uh, just, uh, and, and there's a whole story about Rob Hill uh, too in there, but uh, I just, I, I've been so blessed to see. I was in Dallas the year that uh, Mansell collapsed and fell over in the heat, the famous picture, <laughs> splat. Did he oh. actually collapse or was it semantics? No, no. Talk about your face palm. That was face asphalt. <laughs> it was that was there were two races that ended my photographic career. The first, the first one was when I almost got arrested. They ran an IndyCar race at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Uh, one year, Ari Leyendike missed a turn and went out on an access road in an IndyCar. By the way. Uh, uh, but the, the, the year, the year that my photography ended was, was the coldest day. It was running a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. So I, I'm sorry, I'm not good on Celsius, uh, and high humidity. And I was dying, but I got one more story to tell on me about I'm serious. But so my, my mate that I said about this, Mike Harris of AP was in this, in this, this like meat locker of the, of the media room. And, and I mean, I had to go out on the track. So I'm on the far side of the track, 100, uh, 180 degrees from the pits. And it was red flared. So I start to cross the track and I see people waving at me. And I wave, I stop on the track, not knowing that it had gotten hot. <laughs> and, and Mike is in the media center. Who's that idiot on the track stopping, waving <laughs> to people. <laughs> and just when I get to the other side, and that was the last race I uh, photographed. <laughs> As we are an audio podcast, I just want to tell the listeners that Matt is actually crying right now. <laughs> All I could think of is, and I, I have to see if there's a clip or a photo of this somewhere. If you have one, I would love to see it. But <laughs> the near drowning, there probably is. If you're if Air Canada. Uh, I just know that like it's it's instinctual. If somebody waves at you, you're going to turn around and <laughs> it's an empty track because I'm all the way. It's you know it's not an oval. I can't see the pits. I don't hear any. <laughs> I got scared for you hearing that story. <laughs> it was it was actually the only the other day I was walking to the shop and someone beeped and waved at me, and I didn't realise they were they were uh, waving to the person next to me. So I waved back, not knowing, and felt like a complete idiot. It's natural, isn't it? Um, I, I've done some very stupid. I don't know why I'm still alive. I've done some stupid things. <laughs> I love the sport. Uh, I, I mean, they, by the way, it was an open crossing. Again, they, they raced at the state fair in Texas. So it wasn't a proper, they didn't have Armco barriers or the old Armco stuff all around. So it was a, it was a crossover and, uh, you know, it was open. When they raced at the state fair, that was also during the uh, Texas-Oklahoma game at that time, wasn't it? Mm. In football. American football. Th- There's got to be footage out there somewhere. I'll find it. I will, I will. Oh, I'd love to see it. I got, I got to send it to my family. You know. <laughs> so we all know that Fernando Alonso, who's back this year, I would love to hear your thoughts on that as well, but has been trying to track down the Triple Crown. For years now, always missing his Indy. Yeah. In 2017, you wrote an article stating, and you, or excuse me, 18, when he retired 
that IndyCar drivers were receptive to him coming and running the Indianapolis 500 because they kind of understood what he was trying to do and emulate. Do you think that is still the case today? Sure. Uh, Now it's more Jimmy Johnson, who's retired from NASCAR. Uh, The thing is, racers want to have someone to beat. You know, going back to the IROC and Mansell and Dale Earnhardt, the late Dale Earnhardt, uh, there was a banquet in New York uh, for Driver of the Year, much like the Auto Sport Awards. And it was the same week of the NASCAR banquet. And uh, uh, Mansell had won Driver of the Year, so it had been 94. Yep. And uh, so Earnhardt showed up. At, at this banquet, he was uninvited, but I mean, it's Earnhardt and he was in the running. He wanted to race Mansell in the IROC race in stock cars. And I, I think if you are, especially IndyCar drivers, I don't think th- the one difference is if, if Alonzo got in a stock car and they beat him, they'd say, sure. Because they're so different from IndyCars. It's not a mid-engine, you know, not a mid-engine car. But if, if you are... If you are a, a young IndyCar driver and said, I beat the world champion, I, I'll go back. Danny Sullivan had almost no success in F1. Uh, but he told me way back, he'd won the, the Indy 500 in 1984. All the F1 drivers were jealous of his Indy 500 winning ring. So again, as you said, though, the formula cars are much more close and they'll appreciate what people have done. Uh, the, the NASCAR are not rednecks anymore. It's very high tech, very expensive, but it's it's just such a different world. Yes, a few drivers would appreciate it. Obviously, like Jeff Gordon, big F1 fan. I, I was at the trading paint where he, uh, was it Montoya, swapped cars at Indy. Of course, of course, they put a rev limiter on. It was an exhibition. They put a rev limiter on that. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was a BMW Williams. And so they put a rev limiter because they didn't trust Jeff. <laughs> I, hmm. I'm going to have to find that as well. You're just like getting so many things that I have to look up and remember. I'm and- old. I've been around a while. But my hero, this this Chris Economaki, in the, in the days of the Detroit Grand Prix, one night they had this cocktail party on top of the Wren Center. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And I knew a lot of people, but I remember opening up Speed Sport News. And for every one famous person I spoke to, Chris had spoken to five. You know, so he was my hero uh, in the journalist side. I don't know about these two, but I have one now. <laughs> wait, wait. I have a Chris. Economaki and Bernie Ecclestone story. You've got to hear. Oh, you kept that one quiet. Let, <laughs> let's yeah. hear this. You know, it's like Chris would say, you got to ask me. You got to ask me these questions. <laughs> so Chris thought of himself as a financial genius. All right. And Bernie needed a, a PA public announcer for, for the terrible street race in Phoenix. Were you Were you there for that? I was not, but I have uh, seen some of the footage of that. Phoenix was atrocious at best. Yeah, they had a, they had an ostrich race that outdrew the F1 race. You were asking me about <laughs> what was more popular in the U.S. Anyway, <laughs> America encapsulated right there. 
Chris is trying to do a deal with Bernie. I've got some more Bernie stories too, actually. Anyway, so Chris thinks, Chris thinks, uh, uh, Bernie, uh, we need you. Chris says, sure. I'm sorry. I do, I do Chris Conmack impersonations. You gotta, gotta find some film of him. And so they work out a deal. And, uh, the thing about Bernie was in doing business and he's still around. So I won't say anything that'll get you in trouble, but if Bernie pr- pr- says this is the deal, it's the deal. But he, if he says what, well, and you might get, that never happens. There's no, and you might. But the deal is the deal. He always so. But after the deal was done, Chris realized he didn't get a complimentary hotel room because Chris had to stay in a posh hotel because he's this big guy. Okay. So come, but Chris did not specify the manner of payment. Instead of asking for a wire transfer, he just left it blank. Here's the rest of the story, and it's very old school. He gets a check in the mail, drawn on a bank in Luxembourg for the exact amount. Okay, this bank in Luxembourg had no affiliate banks in the U.S., Drawn on dollars. You know what happens? Chris takes the check. I'm sorry, uh, to people just listening, I'm showing. He hands the check to his bank, who then has to mail it to Luxembourg, and they charge a fee for mailing it to Luxembourg. The bank in Luxembourg accepts the check, and they take a fee for accepting the check. Then they convert the dollars into whatever, this is before the euro, into whatever, and then they take a transfer, they take a fee for converting. Then they convert that back to dollars and take another fee. And then they, that, that, check, that bank in Luxembourg mails, the, mails, uh, mails something back to the bank in New Jersey, and they took a fee for collecting it. And Bernie took off 50% for, for embarrassment and inconvenience. If Chris had asked for a wire transfer, he would have gotten all the money. Oh, my God. Don't mess with Bernie. <laughs> That's evil genius level. <laughs> he, he met the contract. Chris is a very smart man, but not that smart. He's gone now. As the finance guy, my skin's crawling. like, now these guys are going to know what to look out for and I suggest anything. <laughs> wire transfers even though they can be dodgy uh, but when I got paid from overseas the Germans paid me uh, they had they had some kind of something like a wire deposit but but one time I got some check uh, that was a paper check and it was stolen you know so uh, um, that's old school but what Chris Economac this fellas Economac he was the like I said, like the Murray Walker in America, but in NASCAR, IndyCar, and that he was on television, the god of media. And he, he but you, you, could, you cannot outwit Bernie. You've obviously, um, throughout your career, done some, some, some interviews and you, you, you've spoken to people in races and things like that. Are there any that sort of stand out as, my God, I will never forget this? This, this was a particularly good one in, involving Michael Schumacher at Indy. I always felt like when I'm at an F1 race, I'm treated like, you know, country cousin. Again, there's obviously exceptions. 
well, you're American, you know, nice. I have some very dear friends overseas. Look at, look at the bumpkin trying to understand our racing. Right. So they arranged the press officer. We say PR here. The press officer of Ferrari uh, uh, arranges a young woman who the guilty will remain, remain nameless, arranges a, a, a press conference in a bit of a drizzle. Uh, I, could, I got two Schumacher stories, actually, for you that stand out. Not so much for what they said, but how they said. So uh, uh, we were at Indy, and and uh, they arranged this. And there's a reporter for the the Boston Herald named Mike Vega. This guy is huge. He he he's a wonderful man, but he's almost circus clown huge. Brilliant, funny, charming. And uh, so we go into this scrum, and uh, he's holding an umbrella that shields like 10 journalists. It was a golf umbrella on steroids. And so people were peppering with questions. And, uh, and uh, so finally, now this is a major daily newspaper he works for. He's totally professional, like I said, top, top of the... Anyway, finally, uh, it's, it is a scrum. So he finally gets a question. And Schumacher says, matter-of-factly, not mean, he says, I don't see you holding a tape recorder or making notes. Are you here seriously? And he says, I'm holding an umbrella for everybody. And he points to another reporter with a little tape recorder. She's holding my tape recorder. He says, very well. That was a fair question and a good answer. <laughs> More on Schumacher. Uh, this, I have to, I have to set this up. Uh, Again at Indy, Shell arranged for a group of four or five of us to meet him for 20 minutes. And, and I'm going to go back and forth. For 19 and a half minutes, he was totally engaged. I don't have any problem with that. But when his minder said, wheels up, he was out. Of, but he was totally engaged. But the best part of this story was, I have to tell you about a guy named Eddie Gossage is the president of Texas Motor Speedway. And Eddie is a famous self-promoter. He's got a very large ego. And an old friend of mine, he was actually Danny Sullivan's PR guy back in the day when Sullivan won. Anyway, uh, Schumacher was uh, riding horses uh, near the, 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 the uh, I guess it was obviously probably around the F1 race. And he, he, he hears about this racetrack uh, up in Fort Worth. So he goes, and it's Richard Petty driving days. And he goes in and he says, well, I'm sorry, there's a line, there's a queue. You'll have to wait 25 minutes. And he didn't feel like waiting 25 minutes. And when I heard this story, Eddie Gossage could have had a seven-time world champion driving a stock car at his track. Oh, and one other flip side of the Schumacher, I never had a problem with him, by the way. You know, John Tote's another story, but Schumacher, anyway... Uh, there was an intern at Indy one year for the F1. And again, I, I blame the minders. I don't blame the drivers. The minders are more, more uh, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, we had an intern. At, and he was like handing out press releases in the media center. And uh, Schumacher saw him in the paddock area with a cowboy buckle. And the intern comes back with a big smile on his face. Schumacher interrogated him for 10 minutes about the cowboy buckle on his jeans. 
These are the stories I love to hear. <laughs> That's it's incredible. The people, it's the people. If you had to pick one driver over the years in in F one who's really stood out, I know you've spoken about your podium already, um, yes. but who who have you watched and been mesmerised by? Well, watch, watching Santa qualify in the old qualifying format, I have to say, there's nothing like that. He he. He was driving his car like it was a scalpel, and this was brain surgery. To watch him qualify in the rain uh, was amazing. But the one year at Phoenix when there was a guy in the Tyrrell, he'll help me, Italian, French heritage. He battled him in this Tyrrell. Oh, golly, I can't think of his name. That was, that was a one-off brilliant drive. That, that was amazing. Um, I only saw a film of, of Jim Clark, but I, I, I love to see, before the race, he was biting his fingernails and he'd get in the car and was cool as a cucumber. I mean, that was amazing. Um, you just talk about the driving part because I have to go back to my podium. Uh, one year at Indy for the 500, pardon me, uh, they used to have two weekends of qualifying. And, and uh, so we went up to Carl Haas's suite and somebody asked Mario Andretti about, tell us about some of the owners you've driven for. And he filled up, you think I can talk? He filled up 45 minutes of all brilliance. That, that was a great interview. Um, who else? Well, I, I knew, uh, uh, oh, golly. I'm trying to think, Gunther. The, the man who worked on the Ferrari IndyCar chassis who had worked for German, I'm, I'm having a senior moment now. He was very nice to me. We had some great chats. Frank Williams' wife told me about smoking pot with the Rolling Stones. That blew my mind. <laughs> Hold on, we've just stumbled on a gold mine here. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to hear about this. That, that I remember is like all peak level. Because I might have, level. <laughs> I might have, I might have smoked a little wacky weed in my university days too. So we were comparing some notes. Lewis, we need to get together uh, <laughs> soon. Totally unrelated. There was some some great people. Just absolutely, uh, just, just the the one. one <laughs> So, I mean, there's just so many, just wonderful. Well, I, I have to tell you about my guardian angel in F1. She's still around and, and she, her, her ears are going to burn. But um, again, you remember that Ferrari and McLaren both had Marlboro sponsorship back in the day. And, and you may know about how I feel about certain French people and Parisians. But Marlboro had a press officer, Agnes Agnes Carlier, who is an absolute darling. And she opened everything up to me. I mean, helped me. She introduced me when I said open things up. So there was a rumor going around, and it happened. Ferrari was building an Indy car because Enzo Ferrari was still alive. He was pissed off at the garageistas because they wanted to ban V12s. So he was going to say, screw you, I'm going to build an Indy car, which he did. If you go to the museum in Marinello, the car is there. Okay, and that's the German guy I can't think of who did the chassis work. So uh, being a Tifoso, anything Ferrari, but so I mean, we're at Spa and uh, I say, Agnes, 
I, I, get, I don't know what I did to earn her. She really took me under her wing. I mean, absolutely. She speaks five languages. I mean, absolute real hero of mine. The most delightful person. I, I still can't believe she's from Paris. Anyway, sorry about that, Parisians. Anyway, hey, I'm a New Yorker. I get the same stuff. So oh, what happened? I told you, though, I was working for an Italian magazine at the time. And one of the reporters said, we got some Goodyear tires over here in Italy. We'll see what you could find out. I, I, don't, I didn't know anybody at Ferrari in those days. So when, when I was, I was a barrister in the States then, and on holiday, I would go to a race. and I was at Spa. I said, Agnes, can you help me? I really got to speak to someone with knowledge. And like a little boy, she takes me over by the hand to Marco Piccinini and lies and says I'm an important American journalist. I'm not. And, and he gave me chapter on verse on how they were developing this car. That's incredible. And, and, and I, I owe Agnes. If it's not for her and Judy Stropis, I might be a dead lawyer and who'd miss it, a lawyer. I mean, these two, these two women made these introductions. And, and, and without them, uh, and you have me back, I'll tell you more about Judy sometime because she's amazing. But Anya, so you should have Anya on the show, but she'll probably demur and say it's not for me. But if I ever needed like an introduction, she was there. It's just amazing. So how has how have you seen F1 evolve over the years? Because it's a very, very different sport now from what it used to be. Well, again, going back even 20 years, because I remember things were more collegial in the teams, in the rivals. And in America, you look back to historic pictures and you see drivers hanging out together by swimming pools at Kailami or someplace. Now the teams are so big, so expensive that even teammates don't talk, although that happened back then. So number one, the nature has changed. Um, Another reason, going back to your earlier question, F1 is far more technical than it it was so simple. I mean, I, I was in Japan for the IndyCar race, and I went to a Honda collection. This was the one at Motegi. And when you saw F1 cars from the 60s, and those were such simple cars. You got a two-frame chassis, you got your Cosworth in the back, and you got your, 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 and things were so simple, and people hung around together. And now it's so complicated. You need a, you need a degree in engineering. And, you know, in America, What's a power unit? It sounds like something out of a porno film. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, vindication <laughs> on power plant versus power unit. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Lewis. <laughs> this is me. I'm not, I'm not being bright and funny for, for you guys. This is just how I feel. And in the spirits, we will have many drinks together some evening. We will. We yes. will. That, that, well, that, bring, that brings me on to my question. You've obviously spoken about the past versus the present and the present being complicated. But personally, what do you prefer, the past or the present when it comes to F1? Yeah, you call me an old fart or an okay boomer, but I miss those days when it was simpler. Again, I, I didn't know anybody, but I, I knew someone at Goodyear long before the, the triple-decker condos you have in hospitality. And, and photographers were treated like dirt. 
And the Goodyear PR guy invited me at Mosport to the motorhome for sandwiches and coffee. Holy mackerel, I had a warm place. You can't do that. You can't do that anymore, you know? <laughs> but I understand it's a business. You know, and, I, I, and again, if you can wipe away all these layers of people, then there are some wonderful people, but it's, you really have to pay your dues in F1 to get to that level where you can talk to somebody like we're talking now. That, that's a problem. But again, I, I think, you know, we're heading towards electric power units and that, you know, I mean, this is how it, it has to be. It's a shame because I want noise. Cars have to make noise. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the e Formula E. I'm sorry. I was gonna. I was sorry. just about to ask Don't you. Sorry. How, how do the Americans like Formula E? I'll put it this way: No one that I know, and I know a lot of people in racing, have asked me a Formula E question. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me I'm not going to either. <laughs> Formula One is so hard to come across on its own in America, and it's still the most visceral experience. Formula E. Not even a blip on the radar. I may be burning some bridges here, but I have no interest because it doesn't have the soul for me. You know, with the whole uh, American graffiti, you know, talking about the old thumping V8s and, you know, the muscle car era and everything was loud. It was brash. It was in your face. And for me, I'm a gearhead or motorhead or petrol head, whatever the gearhead in gearhead in England okay. means you're into your yeah. drugs, by the way. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can tell from my physique, I definitely do not fit that. <laughs> people divided, two peoples divided by common language. Yes. Yes. But like, I learned not to say fanny pack in the UK. Well, <laughs> 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 one thing I want to mention on, on Formula E is that it's only eight or nine seasons old. Formula One at one time was eight or nine seasons old. It might have been exactly the same back then. I, I'm only 25, so I couldn't tell you. But are, it might have taken a long time for it to become as popular as it is now. Formula E might still grow on everyone, you know. It might make it. Well, absolute calm. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm an old fart, you know. I, I, this is what I grew up with. So I understand. But I'll give you another reason. Here in the States, people in their 20s and 30s are not even getting driving licenses. And actually, it was Mike Hull, who's the general manager of Ganassi, told me a story one time that uh, one day one of his race engineers said, would you, would you take me over to the, the Department of Motor Vehicles? And Hull says, for what? To renew your license? And he says, to get a driver's license. A race engineer. This is a man in his 20s. Didn't have a driving license. When I was 16, it's like, get me, get me my learner's permit, get me a car, anything, get me a Duchevaux, anything. But if you don't care about cars, why would you care about? And this is a problem in America that my friend Mike Harris, I mentioned, his son is 40 years old, lives in, near Chinatown in Manhattan, doesn't drive, doesn't have to. But I, I don't know if he has a driver's license and he's in his 40s. So I, I, can, I can certainly see why, why you know, in, in New York, you wouldn't have a driving license. I think a lot of my friends in London don't because it's more expensive to have a car than get on the tube and, you know, things like that. But um, we, we've, we've now, we've entered this era where we've got Formula One drivers that don't even have a driving license. Well, we did for a while, didn't we? I mean... It, what do you think of these next generation drivers? I'm going to include Lewis Hamilton in this. 
What do you think of them compared to the, you know, the, 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 the legends and heroes that would go out and really risk their life hanging out of a F1 car? Go to YouTube and see a picture of Fangio trying out a Maserati in 1953, skinny tires that were almost bald, drifting through the turns. I don't know. Lewis Hamilton could probably do it because, again, racing, good racers are good racers. Uh, but uh, uh, different talent at different times. Today's driver has to be smarter, has to understand the cars a little better. So it, it's different times. You might you might say a, a Spitfire pilot versus someone in an F-35. I mean, there's different skills. So it's hard to say. I judge drivers the way I judge. I'm going to say because I'm 71 and I can have opinions, strong opinions. I rate drivers on... How they, how they race against a teammate, their ability, and versatility. Of course, you know, in the ovals, they don't race on the rain. But, of course, rain racing, too. But those are my top three. And if you take out ovals, it's versatility. I saw Kyle Busch, who's a very, you know, you asked me about great interviews. Kyle Busch uses the initials KFB and AFB. Well, you could say the word in the U.K., but we can't say it here. But it's a four-letter word meant to procreate. And he loves to call himself KFB. I saw him sideways at Daytona, as well as other people, in a 3,600-pound stock car, soaring the wheel of this thing, keeping it off. Kyle Busch could have driven an F1 car had he wanted, because his I've not seen car control like that. And that's the key, versatility. Kurt Busch, at a test at Sebring, Got into a uh, got into a Bobby Ray Hall car, and within thirty minutes in a car he had never sat was halfway up the time charts. So the, the talent the talent will be there, and you just have to learn. The one big change I will say is years ago, uh, IndyCar racers could run in NASCAR, and that they can't, and that always amazed me because. I talked about kind of a, a prejudice for Europeans to Americans. Well, road racers kind of looked down on NASCAR drivers. So I thought if you could drive, a, you could drive an Indy car, you could drive in a NASCAR. It's not true anymore. So there is some kind of nuance in NASCAR. Um, I mean, the Lewis Hamilton, if he started much earlier, probably. You know, if he wanted to drive a stock car, he probably could. I know he he swapped with Tony Stewart. I don't know how Tony Stewart fit in an F1 car, but that's another story. Do you, do you sort of wish that, you know, back in the day, everyone was driving every sort of class of car? Do you wish that you could see Lewis Hamilton in an Indy car the week after he's been in an F1 car? And the same with Max Verstappen and people, you know, the, the best drivers across all platforms. Yeah, that would be wonderful. There was the year that Dan Gurney... One Indy, he won the Belgian Grand Prix in the car of his own, and I, he had some kind of great result at Le Mans. You know, those the lost. That was what. That's my era. People did everything. Mario Andretti won the Daytona 500 before he won the Indy 500. You know, I mean, and most Americans don't even know that Mario Andretti is an F1 <laughs> great. They know him from IndyCar. Then you have like the old guys like John Surtees, who was a precursor to MotoGP champion and F1 champion. You've got Joe Seifert, Seppi, who was a 350cc motorbike champ and then raced an F1. Like, like the know, bike Hellwood. 
Exactly. And it's personally one of the, and, you know, the reasons I consider Seppi one of my greats is, you know, he was taken too soon in a tragic crash, but the same way that engineers don't even drive now and talking about F1 drivers that don't drive, the guys in, in the in the golden days that they're referred to with Mario Andretti would literally jet set between different series, different cars. You know, you'd be racing a Daytona uh, 24 hour event on Friday, then flying to Europe to do qualifying on a Saturday. And it's just uh, the grandeur and the allure and mystique of the drivers while still there has diminished some for me. Maybe I'm just an old, <laughs> an old guy at heart, but I would love to see, you know, Lewis Hamilton jump in a stock car just because he can, because he has yeah. the driving credentials. Well, that, that was the thing. I did a, a short interview for Reuters a couple of years ago. Uh, Jeff Gordon would still love to run Le Mans. Uh, you know, here's the other thing I find so ironic is that I, I grew up around, I followed sports cars and then F1 long before I did NASCAR. And I, I was around when, when the safety was much more, more work was being done. I was at Daytona in 2001 when Earnhardt died and they were well behind even 20 years ago. So when, when I hear NASCAR drivers think that Indy cars are less safe, you know, that would blow my mind. But perhaps, you know, finally NASCAR was what only be, well, three other drivers died of a similar type of uh, basal skull fracture um, and like a, a 45 degree hit into a wall and and uh, it's sudden deceleration. And if, if people aren't eating, it's a closed head decapitation. Um, it just comes off. Uh, don't hate me. I was a lawyer fighting. I'm doing I know a lot of musculoskeletal things, so I, I, I can be very serious about racing, like when, when Justin Wilson died. Um, so uh, uh, where was I? I guess spun off. But uh, I can't believe, though, that so in the case of Jimmy Johnson, his wife will allow him uh, only allow him to race Indy cars on a road circuit, not on an oval because of the debt. And it blows my mind because the first cars in America to have to have the. Uh, the black box, uh, the the accelerometers were indie cars. Is, is this not um, Roman Grosjean now? So Roman's not um, he, he's not going to be uh, racing the ovals because of the danger of it. But really, surely the danger's the same. Whatever whatever you're doing at that kind of speed, right? You can die in a stuck. I'm sorry, nothing is perfectly safe. Nothing. But but there's a perception now that stock cars are safer than open wheel cars. Again, I, I emphasize perception. Yeah, yeah. Um, but didn't the Honda device come into use in IndyCar and F1? It was about five years before that translated into NASCAR and closed wheel stock car racing here in the states. Tony Stewart bragged he wouldn't wear it. They had some other thing that looked like a uh, S and M device. Uh, that he wore with straps and that he wasn't going to wear a Hans device. You are airing this late at night, huh? <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to have to now. <laughs> this will be marked as explicit for our younger listeners. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Lewis, you've, you've, you've been to many Grand Prix over the years. Um, I mean, Brands Hatch, Monaco, Spa, Monza, Hockenheim... 
Nurburgring as well, which is is a pleasure that none of us uh, will will get. Um, what what is it like doing that for work and being paid to do that? Because I think it's it's easy for people to just think journalists are you know they go and they write, but actually you're living the dream, right? Well, you know, there's always a preface. <laughs> And there was a man, one of Roger Penske's uh, uh, vice presidents, and he was talking about big time auto racing because people would, would buy old jerseys uh, uh, and walk around, think they're in big time auto racing. There is a glamour. And I have to tell you again, from the travel, uh, any one of you heard of Mike Dudson, a British writer? He's friends with Alan Henry. And the coolest thing is, again, going back in those days, I got to hang out with these who did it all the time. The one thing in my bucket list would be to do a whole series of uh, yeah, the whole series, one, just one year. Uh, because, um, and, and it's reverted to the old days. Back when I started, there were no paid trips. There were, you know, if you work for a newspaper, you might, you might get a few trips, but uh, in the heyday, again, with the Marlboros and that, there were these glamorous parties. I mean, there was a whole other world. And in IndyCar, in the car time, I remember having five dinner invitations in one night. And it wasn't just for dinner, because I'd go out with the team, where you'd get the good stories. And as good as the food was, and I'm not turning that down, the stories. I live with these stories, and people would tell me that. So, but I will say, uh, Get you know, fly. I grew up in an era when flying was for people who had you know was for upper middle class. People dressed nicely to get on airplanes and were courteous, you know, and they didn't put you in like a cattle car. And the 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 blue the ones if you're listening fans, getting on a plane and flying cabin class and going twelve hours is not fun. That said or 24 hours, to get to Australia from the States, from the East Coast, you fly to LA or San Francisco, you lay over till the midnight flight, then you land in Sydney or wherever, and then you take another plane. I love this, Coolangatta, now it's Gold Coast. I'd rather say Coolangatta. Anyway, there's, but for me, all that pain was worth it. But I have to, it's 100%, when I got paid to go hang around interesting people in interesting places, I, get, I have a very short bucket list. I, I'm so lucky that I have, well, you heard Mario Andretti's quote? He said, when you, this the first part you've heard, when you do what you love, it's not work. Mario says, I've never worked a day in my life. So aside from being crammed on airplanes, you know, to me, this well, well, there's one one exception. It got to got to be the lawyer. Being at an oval racetrack in the rain is not fun. But other than that, being a bad day at a racetrack, aside from injuries or fatalities, is better than a, a mildly good day anyplace else. Will you adopt me? Because <laughs> the knowledge you have is genuinely amazing. Like if you, if I don't read, but if you wrote a book, I would go and buy it. Cause honestly, like we've, we've all, us three have been sat here and we've just been like in I, awe. I have been so blessed. Just go back to Mario's quote. When you do what you love, it's not work. 
and be yourself and you can get to talk to people. In the pits at Long Beach, many, many years ago, and he was hanging out at one of the British teams. And I said, you know, you look a lot like George Harris. I'm an old fart. I was born in 49. I mean, the Beatles, and they're still, but they were, that was the music I listened to. And he said, that's cause I am. And I got to hang out with George Harrison. And that's Leo amazing. Uh, 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 it's completely by chance. So uh, are you recording this? What the hell? I'm a retired lawyer. I smoked pot with him. Yes. (laughs) And and I'm having a senior moment, and it could be from the the pot, but his his wife, you know. He was such a nice guy, absolutely in love with motorsports. It's it's been such a, a pleasure on having you on this show that I don't actually want this episode to end. Lewis, thank you so much for, for everything. And, and and if you would like, we would love to have you back later on in the year on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, I, I have some dear friends in London. I don't know where you all live, but uh, I will be in the UK sometime in the next few years. Is the steering wheel pubs? Are you anywhere near London? Any of you? Uh, put it this way if you're in london we'll be there wonderful so a big thank you to our guest this week lewis frank shared some absolutely incredible stories with us just at the end of recording this podcast we did receive some extremely sad news that murray walker has passed i for one uh, just want to send my condolences out to his family and this is a horrific shock for the motorsport world um it was only earlier i was watching him commentating on a race um yeah, it's, it's it's a horrific motor, uh, moment in motorsport, full stop. I mean, we all grew up listening to him. Now, obviously, Crofty is the voice, but Murray Walker will always be the guy who made us all fall in love with F1. And it is an extremely sad moment. Like all he says, condolences to his family, because I'm pretty sure the whole paddock in Bahrain at the moment during testing will be rocked. Because it is a, it's a massive loss to the sport. It's losing a titan of the sport. You know, the same as James Hunt, Nicky Lauda. You know, Murray Walker is every bit as pivotal to the historical lineage and legacy of F1, and is <laughs> as much a part of some of the most iconic moments in this sport's history as the racers themselves. And he will be sorely missed. And my you know, thoughts and prayers go out to his family. Uh, this is awful. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.